News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. We talk more and more right across the country about how to provide help to those who need it if they have a substance use problem. The issue of what to do with youth keeps coming up here too, because families and advocates of youth are are kind of having trouble deciding on what the right course is here. They're divided on whether or not minors should be forced into a short-term treatment in order to stabilize them before any kind of long-term voluntary treatment could be provided. Like, do you force them into the short-term on that to help them see the bigger picture, or do you have to wait and let them figure that out on their own. This is a really tough situation. So joining us to talk a little bit more about it is Angie Hamilton, Executive Director of Families for Addiction Recovery based in Scarborough, Ontario. Angie, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. You must see a lot of families that are struggling with this. Yes, we do. We provide uh, free peer support to families. And uh, yeah, it's... it's, uh, it's hard to remain hopeful today, you know. It's, it's very hard on families. They're, yeah. they're all traumatized. Well, yeah, why do you say it's hard to remain hopeful? What are you seeing? Uh, we're seeing the government's not working together um, to provide solutions. Um, um, I, personally, I don't think we're seeing the medical profession step up to the plate as much as, as I'd like to see. Um, you know, we're talking a lot about decriminalizing drugs as well. And that requires um, the uh, police to to stand down, and they have indicated they're willing to do that. Uh, it also requires the medical community to step up, and um, some are, but it, it's happening way too slowly for families. Yeah, I was going to say, it must seem to you that everything that gets talked about is about adults who have substance use problems, but do we talk enough about the kids, the teens who have these issues and how they're dealt with? Well, no, we don't talk about it at all. And, and also not talking about it is the Canadian, you know, Pediatric Association. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, uh, most people don't realize substance use disorder is a pediatric illness. And by that, I mean, if you start use before the age of 15, you're six times as likely to develop a substance use disorder than if you start after age 21. So, we really do need to talk about youth and and uh, prevention and early intervention. What happens, Angie, if parents recognize this? They see this situation that their child is in. What recourse do they have? What can they do? Well, I mean, the first thing is, you know, uh, depending on whether the, the child understands that they've got a problem or not and, and wants help. And sadly, uh, often, um, you know, due to stigma and a lack of insight, um, they often don't see that they have a problem. It's very common. Um, there's lots of research to that effect, not just for youth, but also for adults. Um, but I think even more so youth because they're just starting out. Um, so that is often the main hurdle. So we use something called CRAFT, uh, which is and motivational interviewing for, for parents to, to help them and other caregivers, uh, uh, you know, help motivate um, their, their loved ones who are struggling to, to see the need to get help. Right. So do we often, do we wait for the child to decide that they need help? Or what kind of, like, what can the parents do at that point if they're struggling with a child who doesn't want to get help? 
Well, I mean, that's really the problem. Uh, you know, we, we need an assist from our laws, and they're not assisting us right now. They're, they're a problem. Um, and the fact that they're a problem has actually been well documented in Ontario since 2010. We had, you know, an all-party committee report back. Uh, they had traveled the province to determine what we need to fix our mental health and addiction um, uh, system uh, of care in Ontario. And two of the main recommendations were to deal with uh, involuntary treatment. And that was uh, with respect to adults, not just youth. And also the privacy laws, which are, uh, you know, uh, making it difficult for families even though they're, they may be the main caregiver providing support um, to get the information they need to truly support their loved one. It would seem like there should be, after all this time, there, there is still no place then for a parent to go to say, I have questions, where do I go? Something as simple as that? Um, well, no, I, I think, you know, I mean, head off to the, the, to the pediatrician, right? Uh, or the, the family doctor and start there. But, but, you know, uh, if, if the laws are, if the kid doesn't want help, there's nothing you can do, that, that is a problem. And, uh, and, and youth know right now that's, that's our laws here. And by the way, that isn't the laws in the states. Uh, so where, where in the vast majority of states, families can intervene uh, up until the age of 18, but it's not the case in, in most of the provinces in Canada. Now, some of the Western provinces have specific legislation that allow for like a seven or, or 10 day um, hold, I would call it. Um, but that's not treatment. And that system has also been found to be inadequate in a, you know, uh, public, <clears throat> excuse me, fatality inquiry report out of Alberta a few years ago, where basically the, the judge said, you know, um, involuntary detention, you know, for a few days, that's just insufficient. You need involuntary treatment, and we should be looking at 120 to 180 days as the maximum period, um, because it, it doesn't, you know, people don't get sick in a short period of ta- time. It, it builds over time, even youth, and, and they're not going to recover in a day. It, it takes a significant period of time for the brain to heal. Right. And we're not, we don't seem to be making progress towards it. What about this discussion, Angie? Because I noticed that, you know, in the last couple of weeks, this has certainly been out there. I've been coming across news stories on this. Does that help? Oh, yes. (laughs) Yes. Uh, You know, we can't change anything if we don't acknowledge there's a problem. And if there's a difference of opinion, then let's get everybody around the table and talk about it and, and address those issues. People come from different perspectives. You know, if, you, if, you're, if your kid died and they, they didn't want treatment, you know, the, the problem for you is going to be they didn't want treatment. If they died on a wait list, the problem for you is that there was no treatment on demand. If they died from a toxic drug supply, you know, that might have been the reason for their death. All of these uh, perspectives are valid. All of these concerns have to be addressed. You're so right about that. That sums it up. Angie, thank you for your time on that. You're welcome. Angie Hamilton is the Executive Director of Families for Addiction Recovery based in Scarborough, Ontario. The issue is, what's the right thing to do with youth who have substance use problems? Should they be forced into treatment or should that be a decision that is left up to them? We are going to talk more about this actually coming up on the show this morning, but if you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. 
This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's talk about the rise of anti-Semitism, not somewhere else, but right here in Canada. Canada is going to outlaw Holocaust denial. Federal government set to make it a criminal offense to make a statement or claim denying the Holocaust took place or condoning or downplaying the killing of Jewish people by the Nazi regime, unless it's a private conversation. So you wonder, like, how is this what we need to do to make people start to pay attention to this rise of anti-Semitism? Joining us now to talk more about this is Richard Marceau, who's vice president of the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs. Richard, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Simi. What do you think about the idea of doing this? Well, I think it's an important uh, tool in our toolbox to combat anti-Semitism. It will not solve the issue, but it's certainly one tool that could be used to do though, to do that. Okay, what are some of the other tools do you think that might be useful? Well, other tools uh, include fighting online hate. And as you know, there's a lot of discussions happening now uh, with the government, with the federal government committing to, uh, to combat online hate uh, and presenting a legislation uh, later this year. And there's also uh, resources that could, be, uh, that could be given in terms, not only in terms of training, but in terms of budget to uh, judges, crown prosecutors, and, uh, and law enforcement uh, that could also help combating Jew hatred. What has happened, Richard? Like, why has it? Why have we seen a rise in this? Well, uh, anti-Semitism has been called the longest hatred. Uh, it never disappears; it's always there. Now we see uh, we see a centering of anti-Semitism, which used to be more in the margin of the far right, the far left, uh, and in some other places. But now it's becoming almost acceptable uh, to, to talk about uh, Jews in a manner that is anti-Semitic. Uh, partly it's because of COVID. Uh, we see a lot of conspiracy theories uh, around COVID that, that implies Jews. There's a lot of stuff uh, linked to uh, Middle East politics. And whenever there are, there's a flare-up in the Middle East, we see, uh, we see repercussions here. Uh, I'm based in Montreal, but my children live in, in Montreal. And last May, a group of young uh, Jews were ran uh, after in the streets of Montreal with with bottles and rocks thrown at them. Uh, And that's the type of thing that that, that we see, uh, not only in Canada, by the way, but around the world. So to go back to your original question, Holocaust denial, uh, criminalization of Holocaust denial will not stop anti-Semitism, but it will be one tool uh, that we can use to combat it. Right. And so this that tool, then how do you think it can be used? Do you need to have somebody like made an example of? Well, it's, it's a, vari- a variety of things. But what we know is that whenever Holocaust uh, denial happens, and, and we know that the Holocaust is a documented uh, fact, like there, there's nobody in, uh, there's not an honest person that can say that the Holocaust did not happen. But what, when, it, when it happens, uh, it's it, that it, it, it puts the Jews in the, in the accused box. It says that they've been lying, the world has been lying for some kind of dark objective of trying to go for, for Jews to get another, I don't know, to, to get political points or whatever. Uh, and it's always in a, a way 
to uh, to paint Jews with with a dark uh, to put them under a dark cloud to 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 say that they're they're lying they're they're trying to manipulate facts to to get to to something else and 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 we know that Holocaust denial leads to anti-Semitism and anti-Semitism is a good indication of problems in in the society more generally. Well, listen, Richard, thank you for talking to us about it this morning. Thank you for having me. That's Richard Marceau, Vice President of the Centre for Israel and Jewish Affairs, talking about Canada taking steps toward outlawing Holocaust denial, set to make it a criminal offence to make a statement or claim denying that the Holocaust took place. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, there is a lot going on in Surrey today, meeting of Surrey Council that is going to be very interesting, plus uh, something happening in court today involving the mayor of Surrey, Doug McCallum, too. So for more on this, we're joined by Andrea McPherson, our global news reporter out in Surrey this morning. Good morning, Andrea. Good morning. So what is going on in this Doug McCallum case today? Well, it's a pre-trial conference on his public mischief charge semi. But the pretrial conference is not going to be here in Surrey, and it's not going to be open to the public. It's actually going to be a video conference, and it's taking place in Prince George. And the reason for that is because Prince George is the location of the presiding judge. But uh, we've been uh, all indications point to all in-person appearances are expected to continue to be held in Surrey after that. So, again, this is coming from McCallum charged with public mischief. He claimed that someone ran over his foot at a Save on Foods parking lot during an altercation over the city's police transition. This happened last September. And uh, McCallum has uh, declined to comment on the case so far. Uh, He also didn't enter a a plea in his last appearance either. So that's where we're at today. Right. And he hasn't actually appeared in court yet, has he? It's mainly just been his lawyer? (sighs) The cases, the... um, Dates that I have been covering this myself, it's been via video, and I have not uh, seen him on right. the uh, camera. I've been seeing the uh, defense and, and the judge doing, um, you know, the proceedings uh, through the, the, the video link at the Surrey Courthouse. Okay, and so this is a big step going forward today in seeing this whole situation move forward. You mentioned that the mayor has not said anything about this, Andrea. Is anybody saying anything about this right now? Have you heard any councillors, politicians talking about this? Well, the the other big issue on the docket today, of course, at City Hall is um, the issue surrounding the ethics uh, commissioner. So there's been a lot of chatter about that. And of course, at um, uh, Surrey Court... When uh, the cases are, um, you know, taking place there, there's been a lot of protesters from the Keep the RCMP in Surrey. So there's certainly a lot of chatter about that. Uh, The main thing, too, is there's been more than 16,000 names on that online petition demanding that uh, McCallum, rather than the city of Surrey, pay his legal fees. Um, and, of course, he also faces the ethics complaint about uh, staying on as chair of the Surrey Police Board while being charged with public mischief. So there's a whole lot going on here, um, you know, stemming from the, the incident, uh, the, the court case, and uh, so on. Well, it sounds like it's going to keep you busy all morning. So, Andrea, thank you for your time. <laughs> 
Thank you. Appreciate that. Andrea McPherson is our global interporter out in Surrey. As you heard, there's a whole bunch of stuff happening out there this morning. One, you've got uh, Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum, his public mischief case moving forward today with a pretrial conference. Now, that's not open to the public, but of course, we'll have the updates for you as part of the court process. And then there's the issue that Andrea also referred to as at Surrey Council uh, today. They're going to be talking about that ethics complaint bylaw. And you may think, as I did, that, oh, wait a minute, didn't this come and go already back in January and there was so much controversy over it that they shelved it? Yes, that's true. But now they are all of a sudden bringing it back to talk about it again. The idea with this bylaw is that it would freeze ethics complaints in an election year. Now... That would seem, I know, cynically pretty convenient given that this is an election year and there are ethics complaints, you know, against the mayor having to do with uh, Surrey taxpayers paying for his uh, legal fees in this public mischief case. So, yes, that's very convenient, but we'll see is the public outcry going to be enough to get it taken off the list today too. We'll see about that. So sorry, residents, that's coming up today. And I know there's also a lot of questions about Bill 10. Now remember, there's a new provincial uh, law that has been proposed, and this is by the Municipal Affairs Minister, Nathan Cullen. And what it would do is it would put into place rules about when you remove uh, a politician, a local municipal politician from office depending on what they are charged with criminally. If it is an indictable offense, a politician is charged with that, then that person would automatically be removed, put on leave with pay until the situation is resolved. If that politician is then convicted of an indictable offense, well, they would then be automatically removed from office. That's it. If that, you know, if they're not convicted, they can then return to work. This may seem like a little thing. It is huge because, you know, municipal politicians have been calling for this for a long time, just some clarity on it. Now, Nathan Cullen joined us on Friday to talk more about it. And here he is explaining it a little bit more. It does two things. Um, it, for anyone sitting on municipal council, regional district, who is charged with an indictable offense, you started to list them. These are the this is not jaywalking, serious crimes. They, um, under current rules, they can, even when charged with that serious crime, uh, can choose to stay on council. This has two effects. It, it can really disrupt a council, as you probably know, and they have a hard time getting their work done for the people they represent. It also lowers public confidence in our municipal system. So the first change we're bringing in is that when charged with an indictable offense, uh, someone is removed from council, not, not voted. It's just removed. Um, it's with pay. It's not meant to be punishment because you're innocent until proven guilty under our laws. The second tool is if someone is charged and then convicted of one of these offenses, we are changing it so that you don't wait until they're sentenced, which can take weeks or months. They are effectively removed from council. Again, not a vote at council, not a motion. They're simply off. The municipal council. That's it. They're done. Okay. So that's Municipal Affairs Minister Nathan Collin talking to us on Friday about this proposed bill, which is moving forward, and they'll talk about it now. Here's the tricky part about this and how it applies to the Surrey situation. So he's talking about an indictable offense, which are the more serious offenses. In the case of what's happening in Surrey, the mayor is charged with public mischief. That is a hybrid offense, meaning Crown prosecutors 
can you can pursue it as an indictable offense or they can pursue it as a summary conviction which is not an indictable offense so it's a a hybrid offense it could go either way and obviously it wouldn't even apply in this case because that law has not yet been put into place so it just goes to show you how complicated i think these situations are we will keep you posted on how that goes in surrey today and if surrey residents want to weigh in let's hear from you simi at cknw.com this is mornings with simi Okay, let's talk about what's going on in the city of Vancouver. They have a bit of a budget problem, let's say. You may remember that last month, BC's Director of Police Services um, overruled a budget decision there, ordered the city to come up with more money for the Vancouver Police Department. And now the the city council has to deal with the issue of, well, how do they come up with that money? Joining us now to talk about this is Sarah Kirby-Young, Vancouver City Councillor. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, Timmy. Okay, so this is going to be discussed at Council. What are the options here? Well, here we go again. Um, having a bit of deja vu on this one um, because, as you know, the Director of Police Services ruled in favour of the DPD appeal and Council now has the task of determining the reallocation within the operating budget, which they're required to do. Um, and um, what staff are recommending is that the money come from the City of Vancouver Reserve Fund um, but they provided an alternate recommendation that property tax can be increased for this year because they have not been finalized. And so I suspect that a number of councillors who were in favour of defending the PD and have been chipping away at this and wanting to reduce police resources are going to try to support the property tax option, and um, which I don't, just to be clear. Okay. How much of a property tax <laughs> increase are we talking about here? Well, it would be another 0.6% on top of the 6.3%. The mayor had promised that it would be no more than 5% this year. Uh, then he broke that and levied an additional 1% climate levy, which put us over 6, around 6.3. So then you would add another 6, and you'd be at 7%, bringing the total to about, I think, over 21% over four years that this council has raised to property taxes. Now, this is an election year, so... Let me just be obvious about it and say, is that really the route council's going to take in an election year? Well, I know it seems odd, but I think that unlike those of us that have been trying to ask council to rein in the spending because we're raising taxes hand over fist at a rate that people can't afford, which is going beyond any increase in income that people are getting, I think that the narrative here, which has been around defunding the PD and reducing the resources, is going to be trying to blame a tax increase possibly on um, the police department and these punitive costs. But what is not said is that Vancouver is not different in terms of the total percentage of our municipal operating budget that we spend on policing because it's considered a core service. Um, And so, you know, we are in the business of public safety. That's a responsibility, but there's just a number of counties that don't like that. Now, Councillor, let me ask you here, because I know a lot of people wonder about this next question, and that is, before the option to either dip money out of the reserves or raise property taxes, does the issue of where can we find some savings ever come up? Well, I'm really glad you asked that to me. Um, no, um, this is not a council that has been particularly um, looking to find efficiency for savings. Um, and in fact, we actually had the opportunity to set this money aside in the budget, council didn't do that. We had the opportunity to return 
two reserves, an additional $8 million that staff recommended that we do because our reserve fund has been depleted throughout COVID and this council didn't do that. They decided to spend that as well as increasing our property taxes by another 1% this winter. A slush fund um, of a little bit of extra cash that because we were not as badly off, we didn't go bankrupt like the mayor said the city of Vancouver was going to do. Um, and our revenues were higher. And so staff said the prudent thing to do is to return it to reserves. And, and the council said no. So we could have, um, we really could have planned for this and council chose not to. So to me, it, it doesn't make sense to dig them out of the hole and let the, my council colleagues around the table increase property tax yet one more time. Is this an ongoing then increase? Because it was increased once. Does that mean that that increase has to happen now in successive years? That money has to be matched, does it not? Well, what it really means is that, uh, you know, fundamentally the Director of Police Services decision says that this is the amount of money and this is a reasonable request from the Vancouver Police Department to provide these services in the city of Vancouver. And that's your responsibility to do that. Um, I would note, too, that we also have a motion on the same agenda from Kent Bruce Swanson, who wants to appeal this decision. Um, and I'm looking at the report from the Director of Police Services, Wayne Rideau, and he says, you know, I think this is really telling. I would encourage the parties to re-engage in the spirit of collaboration and, where possible, strive for a shared vision for public safety for the community. And I think that that has fallen on deaf ears because we have a motion to, just after this decision around how we fund the $5.7 million, to go back and try to exhaust every legal avenue and appeal it again. So I don't think that we're moving forward. And, this is a council that needs to work with our police department, not be at all to them. Well, we'll see what happens. Uh, thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks, Always a pleasure. Sarah Kirby-Young, Vancouver City Councilor, talking about the choices council will be discussing uh, at a meeting to figure out what to do about that money for the Vancouver Police Department that has to be given to the VPD. Where will it come from? Will they raise our property taxes 0.6%? Will they dip into reserves? Will they find some other solution? Oh boy, I don't even want to I don't want to think about the one that I think is going to happen, which is our property taxes going up, but we will continue that discussion. This is Mornings with Simi. So we've been talking today on the show about how families and advocates are divided on the issue of forced care for youth who have substance use and abuse issues. Angie Hamilton is the Executive Director of Families for Addiction Recovery, and she said, well, there is legislation in some provinces, it's not adequate enough to justify forced care. Now, some of the Western provinces have specific legislation that allow for like a seven or or 10 day hold, I would call it, but that's not treatment. And that system has also been found to be inadequate. Well, let's talk more about this now. So joining us is Leslie McBain, co-founder of Moms Stop the Harm. Leslie, thanks for being back with us. Oh, good morning. Thank you. What do you think about this debate? Well, it's complicated. Um, and I, you know, I was feeling a little nervous about talking to you about it because um, there's so many angles uh, from which to look at it. Um, secure care has, the evidence shows that secure care is not effective. Um, But parents who are worried about actually the life of their children, you know, I can, it's completely understandable that uh, they would want to have their child in in, in a safe and secure care environment. But as I say, there's unintended consequences to this. And um, there is, 
uh, a matter of legal rights and and so on. It's very complicated. Uh, so I'm I'm not on the fence. I don't believe that that's. The, I think it should be a last resort instead of um, you know parents just going right. going to that. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna put my kid into this into this environment and. Uh, they will be safe, and I will be able to sleep at night, and and so on. How? But how can you design a system so that that is only used as a last resort? Is that even possible? I believe it is. Um, and actually, I think our Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions is working on this harder than they have in the past. But what we need is is a, a continuum of care, something that is uh, welcoming to youth, some a place or a a system where it's uh, you know compassionate care, it's gentle, it's. Um, you know, using sometimes using the drugs that we have, such as methadone or suboxone, some of those drugs that help wean kids off of if they're addicted to the drugs, wean them off of it in a in a good way. Uh, and also, indigenous youth are you know are mistrustful of the system because of interactions in the past. In the excuse me, in the past. Um, so, yeah, a, a system of care wherein they're welcomed and feel cared for. Uh, uh, Grabbing. Here's one thing that I think of. Okay. What would this actually look like? You know, how are you going to get, let's just say, a 16-year-old male who, you know, the parents want him in secure care and he doesn't want to go? What does that look like? So that's something that troubles me. That's a very good point. And I, and I guess it's, it's different. Like for parents, you're, you're coming from a place of desperation at that yeah. point, aren't you? Like you're just, you will do anything to try to get some help. Exactly. Um, I mean, certainly having been through this and, um, you know, uh, my son did die, as you know, and he, he, uh, he would have just rebelled like crazy. Uh, so, I'm sorry, what was the question? I sort of well, fell into my no, own I, story there. I, I heard that happen there, and I can see why you would, because you start to think about what if, right? Yeah. Like what, yeah. what if that had been available to you, but you, mm-hmm. as you point out, your son, in, your, in that case, you feel he would have, you, you might have ruptured that relationship permanently. Absolutely. Uh, he, and I see that, uh, you know, that, that is, that's what makes sense, actually, when you think about secure care and, and parents putting their kids involuntarily into that, into that system. Um, they can, you know, the unintended consequences are losing trust in the family, in the, in the parents, when that happens, uh, losing more trust, if there ever was any, in, in the system. It's, it's like, forcing them into prison but it but with some kind of care the thing is too we do not have that care if if a child was put into uh, a secure care environment there's nothing there there's nothing there but also (laughs) we 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 have to build that we don't know the history of the relationship with the between the parents and the child either true we don't know like what led to the addiction we don't know was there abuse in the home we don't we don't know what led to this situation that might it might be even worse to let the parents have a say about what happens yes Yes, and that's why I say it's complicated. Uh, it's not a one size fits all. It's a one. It's a a size for every family, every every individual. So yeah, it's uh, the other thing is you know the mental health aspect. Uh, we do have the Mental Health Act, which can you know take 
even youth into care if they're a danger to themselves and other, or others. Um, so, so that is there. And so many kids and adults as well have mental health issues, and which is why they're self-medicating with illicit substances or dangerous substances. So where do you go? I mean, if we had a system, if we actually had the system of secure care that would, would be successful, um, it, would, it might be a different story. Right. But I do think that the the issue of trust, A, and B, the issue of vulnerability when, when they are released out of that care. Um, most kids, do they want to run back to their families? No, probably not. Most kids probably want to go find their friends. I mean, that's how teenagers right. are. So, I wonder, uh, is there yeah. a way then, how would you suggest we could build some of these safeguards into the system? Like, what would you tell the minister? Well, I would say, first of all, that we need uh, a, a system of care from grade one on uh, to um, be able to watch and see that the kids that are vulnerable at risk, you know, that have depression or anxiety or different things that may lead to uh, substance use and, and care for them in a good way. But then as, as they grow and uh, then having relationships and information for parents and children about how to um, care for kids who, who are vulnerable, and then once, if they do get into um, substance use, having an open arms type uh, care, found, um, yeah, I'm just trying to think of the name of the, um, there is, we do have, have some institutions right. here in BC where uh, kids can walk in, be uh, welcomed, have some counseling, have a place to be, uh, have, um, Oh, what's it called? Oh, sorry, I just couldn't remember. Like a connection. to They can make that connection on their own. They can, yeah. Or, you know, it, I mean, certainly parents and, and teachers and people in their lives could suggest uh, going to, um, you know, even if it's a, uh, a clinic that has, has a, an outreach program. So there are ways, but, but parents have to be very... Um, kind, not angry. Uh, you know, there's, there's ways to behave with kids like this, as I know. Um, we can't judge. We have to be um, showing our love and care for them so that if they go into a place where they will get counseling or will get some treatment, um, that they're not scared of it. They're not, right. not mis- mistrusting the whole, whole system. It can't, it, yeah. It so, is so tricky. And Leslie, you've yeah. done a great job of explaining how complicated that actually is. But listen, thanks for joining us this morning. You're so welcome. Thanks for asking me. That's Leslie McBain, co-founder of Moms Stop the Harm. She lost her son to opioid addiction, as she mentioned there too. So this idea of youth and whether or not they should be forced into care if they have a substance use issue, it is it is a tricky one. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about what's going on in Chinatown. We And these stories just keep coming up and there seems to be no end to them because once again, more Chinatown business owners and advocates are speaking out after the Chinatown Guardian Lions were targeted again in the city's ongoing vandalism problem. These same statues have been repeatedly targeted by vandals, sometimes with explicitly racist graffiti. 
overall, we know that Vancouver police have told us that they have seen a huge increase in the amount of graffiti in that area. We've seen vandals target a mural commissioned by the city of Vancouver, aiming to celebrate Chinatown's diversity. I mean, we have seen all this stuff happen over and over and over again. How is this going to change? Well, the province said on Friday they hope to work with the city on solutions, but let's talk more with Jordan Eng right now, chair of the Chinatown Business Improvement Association. Jordan, thanks for being here. Uh, Thank you, Simi, for having me on. Good morning. Jordan, how frustrated are you when having to deal with this? Like, you just (laughs) must get with the phone call that comes in, think, oh, not again. Yeah, no, Simi, it's just, it's been crazy. I mean, uh, you know, we have... uh, a budget to, to clean up graffiti and the whole neighborhood has just been overwhelmed. It's uh, it's extremely frustrating. We had this issue last year, this time we thought it got better over the summer. You know, the community came out, helped clean up. We had volunteer workers and then, uh, you know, we had great festivals, people coming down to Chinatown and again in January, this has started all over again. It's um, and, and it's just repeated. Like you say, um, we clean it up and within the next week it's up there again on the same wall. So, is there a pattern here other than the repeating? Is it the same type of graffiti? Is it happening at the same time of day? Like, what what do we know about it? Well, we know that, uh, you know, uh, we have people coming in from other parts of the cities, people uh, driving in vans. These are young, young people that are coming in and just doing mischief. And, uh, and uh, you know, it's just not acceptable. It wouldn't be acceptable in any, in any other area of the city. Uh, we seem to be a soft target. And so, you know, the community is really fighting back. We're we're looking for, for help from the city, the province, and uh, the police department. And what kind of help? What, what do you think would work here? Well, we need to, to catch some of these uh, uh, taggers and, and uh, make them responsible, either restorative justice. Um, you know, we know they're driving vehicles into the area. They're, they're, some of them are young people. Give them fines, you know. Um, uh, so so what, whatever the police department can uh, can do and the province can help out to, to make the laws uh, um, workable so that right. they're, they're just not being fined and, and, and walking away from it. So. so, Jordan, do you think maybe you need you need a couple people to be examples for how you're cracking down? Correct, yes. Yeah, definitely. Do you have the sense that the like p- police are willing to do that or the province, the city are, are willing to help out with that? Well, you know, the police department has, has been very helpful and very supportive um, and it's great news from the province that uh, this is the first that we've heard from the province. So if there's something that they can do, uh, you know, we would support them and, and, uh, and, and work with them as well. Okay, so what are the next steps to take here? Well, we need to, uh, uh, you know, there's been uh, suggestions of, of, of uh, CCTV cameras. Um, we're catching some of these people, more police patrol, on the streets and in the evenings. So you are catching them, but when you catch them, what happens? Um, they get, a, you know, they they get told that they should leave the neighborhood. Um, what we need is they need to be charged and uh, taken through the legal process. Okay, so then what you're saying is like out on patrol, you see people who might be about to do something, and you kind of move them along, and so they don't actually do it. But then there's no kind of repercussions or consequences. There is no consequences. Uh, there is no accountability uh, for these people. I mean, there, there's a system with uh, perhaps of restorative justice where they're taken to a criminal court and to, to to come back and help clean up the graffiti that's uh, that's done in the neighborhood. Right. Okay. So if you send a message, Jordan, to the city, what would you say? Um, well, we need more uh, help from uh, uh, city council to 
you know, we need more of a budget to to help clean up the graffiti that's that's been targeting in a, in our neighborhood right now. Um, it's it's being paid by out of the BIA budget, which is also paying for security in our neighborhood. Half of our budget uh, each year goes to security, cleaning up graffiti, cleaning up um, uh, the street. So. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. We'd like to focus on some other things, too. Jordan, thanks for your time on that this morning. You're welcome. And thanks for having us on, on uh, today. Anytime. Jordan Ang, chair of the Chinatown Business Improvement Association. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. What would work? How do you stop people from this kind of graffiti that's happening in Chinatown? We'll talk more about that. The news is next.